The following podcast contains explicit language. You're listening to the Cinematography Podcast presented by Hot Rod Cameras, a program about the art, craft and philosophy of the moving image and the people who make it happen. Coming to you from the world headquarters of Hot Rod Cameras in Hollywood, California, are your hosts, Ben Rock and Ilya Friedman. Hey, Ilya. Hey, Ben. Guess what? What? We're also joined by producer Alana Cody today. Yay! Hey, guys. Hey, so, so Alana, you conducted an interview with the filmmakers behind Food and Country, correct? I did. Yes. Often for Sundance stuff, we don't have a lot of time. So I stepped in and conducted the interview for this one. Plus, it's about a subject that I'm very interested in, which you hate. Hate. <laughs> Hate's a strong word. Okay. Um, because it involves our food and our food system in this country. I have to say, I find that very interesting. I just don't like hearing people talk about some fussy pants endive salad that they ate the other day, you know. Well, it's absolutely not about that. Good. It's more about the larger picture of the restaurant business during the pandemic mm. and where food comes from and how it's grown and how that whole system is broken. So I got to speak with Ruth Rachel, who is a food critic and a food writer and one of the producers and the interviewer on this documentary. So she was very involved in this. And the director, whose name is Laura Gabbert, and the DP, whose name is Martina Radwan. And do you know if the film has a distribution yet? It doesn't. Oh. So they are looking for a distribution. Man, that's always one of the bummers about going to a film festival like Sundance. So many of the films that go there already have distribution before you get there or they get it while you're there. But some of those movies, that festival or the festival circuit will be the only time that you ever get a chance to see them. So uh, here's me hoping that this isn't the case here. I think it will. Um, Laura Gabbert, the director, has done several other food type of documentaries before. She actually did one on Jonathan Gold, who is a well-known L.A. food critic. Was that City of Gold? City of Gold, yes. And she's done some other work in this field. So she will probably, hopefully it'll find some distribution. Well, that's awesome. Well, uh, Mm -hmm. let's go ahead and jump into our close focus, which this week we came across an article. The one that I read was in Variety, but it's kind of been all over the place. And it's sort of about the downfall of Justin Roiland in the Rick and Morty universe. We all kind of came to a similar conclusion, all three of us. The odd parallels that it has with Ren and Stimpy, you know, which was, what, 30 years ago, where the creator was replaced And in this case, Justin Roiland is kind of co-showrunner with Dan Harmon, the legendary Dan Harmon, who himself was replaced as showrunner on Community for, I think, two seasons and then came back. It's a really weird and complicated story. Uh, You want to fill us in a little bit? Okay, so it appears that Justin Roiland has a couple of uh, complaints against him from 2020 now uh, for domestic abuse. Yeah, credible, apparently, like he's going to trial. He was arrested. Yeah, highly credible. And it seems like, you know, not necessarily well liked by the writers on the show, at least not all of them, because immediately a writer came forward and corroborated some of these stories that uh, have been going on. So it sounds like Hulu has ended their relationship with them. Uh, Adult Swim has also ended their relationship with him. So uh, yeah, he was doing two different series for Hulu and and they ended their relationship with him. Solar Opposites was, I think, the other one. Solar Opposites. And then there was one called Koala Man. 
which it sounds like, though, according to the article that I just read, he had been phoning it in, at least in a writing capacity for some time. It's been a while since he was in the writer's room and he basically did the voice work uh, from home. And so most of the people there weren't having any interaction with them except for uh, the recording of the voices. And that is sort of a parallel, if I recall correctly, from John Kay, who thought that if he did the voices, he couldn't be replaced. And yeah. it's, that certainly didn't turn out Q, to be true. Cue Billy West. Yeah. <laughs> it seems like that is going to be the least amount of job security possible in the age of AI too, where if you've got a large body of samples of what your voice sounds like, that a computer can also recreate it now with like almost zero time, which you is... You know, I, I wonder about that though, actually. I, I think that that's an interesting point, but if they're sampling your voice, you would have to give them permission to use your voice in that way. Whereas if somebody else can just do a drop dead perfect impersonation of your voice, then they're not using your voice at all. They're just kind of using your creative creation. And a lot of people can do a dead-on imitation of almost any voice, really. Mm. And, you know, you could probably make the the argument, though, that there is some amount of harmonics or wave differential between the original and the Memorex, as it were, or the, you know, the, the computer recreation. But if it's close enough that no one can really tell anyway. It's the same sort of thing as like sound alikes. We're, we're getting into this interesting time right now where more and more stuff is going to be successfully created through the use of AI and fewer and fewer people will, will know about it. I was actually just talking to someone the other day who told me that AI has been involved in VFX work now for a very long time. And most of the companies that were doing it just didn't tell anyone what was going on. And that was really their way of saving time and saving you know man hours from the very mm. tedious work that used to go on with rotoscoping and everything else. They had been training neural networks to be able to shortcut and speed up the process of what used to take, you know, uh, the derogatory term is pixel monkeys, a bunch of lower waged people working crazy hours trying to solve very repetitive tasks. So I guess it's been going on for a while and now it's starting to spread into more and more mainstream stuff. Well, I have to say that I did not see this conversation going into AI, but I think uh, every conversation does these days. It seems I, to be very that way. I mean, I, I personally, maybe you would disagree, maybe I, for sure Kays would disagree, that uh, I feel like the performance of a voice actor, as compared to someone who's like, I have heard AI voiceovers on online commercials and stuff like that, or even radio spots, and I feel like you kind of let it slide there because it's just a voice saying like, come on down to the mattress barn for 50% off. And it's not that important, but a character, a real character, which is created by a person doing a voice, like that's something that's, it's created by an artist. It's very performance driven. And maybe one day AI will be able to do that and you won't need to hire somebody who sounds like Justin Roiland. But honestly, if you go on Twitter and do a search, you'll find three or four at least people who do a pretty spot on Rick and a spot on Morty. And I don't feel like it's going to be that hard to replace him in that regard. I mean, to me, did the, he do any of the art? Well, I mean, not anymore. No, not okay. in a long, long time. Yeah. yeah. I mean, like he created, so, you know, the history of Rick and Morty is it was originally called Doc and Marty and it was created for channel 101, which is Dan Harmon's I, I've been to a few Channel 101 screenings. They used to go to, what was it called, Cine Lounge or something? Yeah, it's in Los Angeles, in Hollywood. And, and every month they would have a bunch of episodic shows, like I think it was seven, and the audience would vote to bring back 
five of them, I think. And so there were always two new ones, two pilots every month. And Rick and Morty started as Doc and Marty, an animated series that Justin Roiland made for that. Ah. And you can find it online and it's super filthy. I mean, like it's way filthier than Rick and Morty and Rick and Morty is not unfilthy. But like, look, no one's irreplaceable. And if some right. and, and if Justin Roiland commits a, a crime, he should lose his job. He shouldn't be able to keep yeah. working it and making media. And, you know, people complain about cancel culture, but it's like this isn't cancel culture. This is a guy doing a crime. And by the way, you know, like every job I get, you know, when I did catchers for Audible, there was a clause in my contract that said that if my personal conduct became, you know, notorious. An embarrassment and, to yeah, the people who are employing they, you. Yeah. They can fire me even though it has literally nothing to do with my job. Like I didn't do anything wrong on the job. But if I go out and, you know, rob a bank and get in the newspaper for robbing a bank or something like that then they can fire me on on that basis. And Justin Roiland is not free of that. Plus, I'm sure he still would get royalties. But I found that article very interesting to learn that, like, he hadn't been very involved in the writing. And if you look at his writing credits for the show, he's only credited with writing four episodes. And two of them are called are, are interdimensional cable episodes, which you can tell when you watch them are all ad-libbed. It's like all improvised. They just kind of let it rip. And I'm sure that they recorded five hours of stuff and cut it down to 20 minutes of Really funny stuff, but that's not him sitting in a room breaking story and writing out dialogue. That's him at the microphone goofing off, basically. And uh, they'll be able to find someone else who can do it. Yeah. You know, I'm not going to keep bringing this back to AI, but to bring it back to AI. <laughs> oh, uh, do it. R- really. Uh, here's here's AI my point. AI can't sexually harass people. <laughs> you know. Yet. <laughs> yet. Just, oh, just you wait. Really, where, where we're headed, though, is, is this. You know, there is respectable, completely seamless. You wouldn't know it wasn't a person speaking AI. I'm thinking of a couple of companies in particular who can do this sort of voice work. I will probably spend the rest of my time, though, on this podcast or maybe in this industry arguing that it probably shouldn't. And it's the same thing with actors. I mean, I think like the the contribution that actors make to the process, the same way that it might just be with a voiceover artist, but it's still acting. It's, it's a whole range of acting. To be able to replace that with computer-generated performance, you're going to lose something. You're going to lose something no matter how good that gets, and you're not going to get the same choices. And I think that ultimately having the, the real human collaboration is what all forms of media and entertainment is going to be about, even the ones that seem like you're playing a video game. I think that you have to have that human element. Otherwise, it is an uncanny valley that is too far. Yeah, I definitely agree. And I also like I, I kind of want to just go out on one note, which is uh, what's the deal with animators in this kind of behavior? You brought up before we went on Mike, uh, John Lasseter. It's who lost, lost his job as what was it, president of Disney Animation. He was one of the main dudes at Pixar, you know. Yeah. And uh, to me, this story is like such an odd echo of John Crickfalusi and what happened on Ren and yeah. Skimpy. And when I saw the documentary about him, Happy, Happy, Joy, Joy, which you guys uh, yeah, reported to from to Sundance. Yeah. yeah. When I did finally see it, I was actually shocked that John Kay on camera was talking about one of his accusers and he was like, I'll apologize. Give me her phone number and I'll apologize right now. And I'm like, you think someone's going to give you her phone number? Like he seemed to really think that that was going to happen. It's like, yeah, you don't, you don't get it, man. Like, <laughs> like, and the fact that he didn't do jail time for what he did was pretty insane. And I feel like today he would have, that wouldn't would happen a hundred percent go to jail for what he did and should go to jail. 
And yeah. I'm interested to see if that's what happens here with Justin Roiland. I mean, you know, I'm not wishing any, I mean, you know, if he's innocent, I don't want to be sitting here, you know, running him down. But it really not only did, you know, this credible accusation come up, not only did he get arrested, but then a lot of other women started giving out. And some of them were underage when he sent them these texts. They started sharing texts that he had sent them that are, let's just say, at best, somewhat incriminating, you know, like. <laughs> Yeah. You don't want to be saying that to an underage person. Even if you're joking, it's not that funny and can be easily misconstrued and and taken in horrible ways. And I won't repeat these, but whoever's listening, you're a savvy person. You're holding an Internet browser in your hand. (laughs) True. Well, maybe we should get to the interview. Yes. Here is the interview with the creative team behind the documentary Food and Country. The Cinematography Podcast Interview. So I'm here with the team from the Sundance Film Festival documentary, Food and Country, with director Laura Gabbert, producer and interviewer Ruth Reichel, and cinematographer Martina Radwan. Welcome to the Cinematography Podcast. Uh, Ruth, you are a personal hero of mine. I, I love your writing, and I still use your roast chicken recipe. So... <laughs> <laughs> it's the best. It's easy. <laughs> so, um, so I watched the film, and I and I have a real interest in our food systems. And Laura, why don't you tell us um, a little bit about the film? So early, early days, pandemic, March twenty twenty. I was worried about a lot of the restaurants in Los Angeles, and sort of thinking about doing something, some kind of short piece about that. And Laurie Choa, Jonathan Gold's wife. Ruth and I in touch. We we knew each other a little bit just from City of Gold, but put us in touch. And Ruth was really worried, and I'll let her speak for herself, but she was very worried about the entire food system. And she said, you know, you've got to think about more than just the restaurants. This is about the entire food system. This could be devastating. And we just kept talking and we decided we would start trying to collaborate on something. We didn't really know what it would be yet, but we just thought, let's just start talking about this and having we started to have Ruth do some zoom calls with people and we asked her to record them just for research and development thinking that we would be able to maybe get on a plane in a few weeks and go actually visit people and Ruth I'll let you pick it up from there yeah it's hard to remember now but when this all started we all really thought oh this will be over in a couple of months yeah my major feeling was you know someone who's been writing about and thinking about American food for 50 years, I thought this may be the turning point. I I don't know where we're going to be at the end of this, but maybe farmers are going to fail, restaurants are going to fail, or maybe something else will happen and Americans will suddenly become aware that cooking is important. They'll be home with their families and everybody will be cooking. But Whatever happens, we're going to be at a different place at the end of this than we are at the start. And so I just, you know, started cold calling people and saying, you know, what's going on with you? How is this affecting you? And one person would send me to another. So, you know, I would call up a chef and they would say, you know, there's this amazing farmer and he's in trouble now because he's only selling to restaurants and I don't know how he's going to survive this. So then I would call up the amazing farmer. And, you know, this was just, we were going to try and identify the characters for a film. Mm -hmm. And then every time we would think, 
oh, now's the time when we can get a team and go out and shoot, we wouldn't be able to shoot. We couldn't fly or the people we wanted to shoot weren't vaccinating and nobody wanted to get close to them. And this sort of went on and on and on. And um, meanwhile, I'm going down rabbit holes and calling more and more people. And, and before it was over, I had really collected hundreds of hours of Zooms. Yeah, I was curious about that. Like, did that originate first or did you do the Zooms after you had already sort of figured out a roadmap? No, we, I mean, I just, I feel like I made this so difficult for Laura because I was just following my own curiosity and somebody would say, oh, you know, there's this amazing person who's doing this thing with cover crops and I would call them up and there would be another, you know, three hours of Zooms. And Laura and the entire team sort of watched these hundreds of hours of Zooms. I mean, every week we would talk a couple of times and discuss what was interesting. And then as it went on, the characters gradually emerged. And I think for me, the thing that was amazing was what happened with Zoom, because people were isolated and they were, you know, really just with their very close families. And here I was a stranger coming in, but over time, even though I'd never met them in person, I got to know them and they got to know me really well. And I was someone safe to talk to. Right. And I'm sure you probably got more out of it too. And because everyone was so emotionally raw. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And because I wasn't the person they were living with, they could really tell me, you know, I, let me tell you what I'm feeling now. Yeah. And so yeah. I got, we got these incredibly intimate conversations. Yeah. It was one of the, you know, accidental gifts, <laughs> you know, from COVID. We just first, first thought it was research. And then we just started looking at being like, oh, this is actually kind of interesting. It's interesting to have these moments happen, you know, once you're liberated from that kind of traditional one camera setup interview there is just a vulnerability and because Ruth has been a reporter and written about food forever, people felt really safe with her and they felt like they could ask her for advice and they shared their personal fears with her. So it was kind of extraordinary just to see that sort of happen and see those relationships build over the course of about a year and a half. Yeah. But I have to tell you, when Laura said she wanted to use the Zooms, I was horrified. (laughs) No, 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 no. Wait a minute. I'm not in it. I'm just... I'm just asking the questions. I mean, it it took her a while to persuade me that it was okay to use those. Mm -hmm. Because you were like, I'm not dressed for it or Well, I mean, you're not thinking, there I am in my pajamas, really asking questions, you know. (laughs) And then, you know, what we did is even before it was really safe, we did have some remote one-person, two-person crews in different parts of the country at least capturing something for us, like a little bit of B-roll that was shot safely. And then once we really identified our characters and we all had at least one shot in our arms, then we took off and with, you know, Martina came with us, you know, all over the country and shot a lot of stuff. And then we were an actual crew, but it was interesting because the Zoom calls then would kind of inform what we needed to shoot. So they were actually really helpful because our characters were spread all over the country We couldn't spend like a week with each character or two weeks with each character. We really had to kind of dip in and dip out of these characters' lives. And I think just the intimacy with Ruth and then the information the Zoom calls gave us helped direct what we needed to shoot. 
And then Martina, who is just like a master verite <laughs> shooter. And tireless. And tireless. Yeah. <laughs> well, I wanted to ask Martina then a little bit, like what were some of the challenges for you with shooting, you know, during COVID? Well, at the beginning when Laura approached me, she showed me all these Zoom calls and I thought like, oh dear, like how do I make this interesting basing something on Zoom, right? But I really have to say the Zoom calls are so intimate that they're so emotional that it really doesn't matter whatsoever. And then, of course, you know, for us, the challenge was it was still COVID and we had to travel. But once we were in the places, we had a lot of exterior shoots, which obviously helped during the pandemic. And which normally, again, is like, you know, for cinematographers, like, mm, can we please only shoot in the morning and in the late afternoon and Obviously, nobody had that, has that luxury. So that was a bit challenging, but we made it work. Mm-hmm. Did you have a specific look that you were going for? We the, the one thing that we really agreed upon, which was kind of based on the two locations that we were mostly dealing with, meaning kitchen and exteriors, was that we're having that we're focusing on wide shots and close-ups, and mm-hmm. it's kind of try to avoid the medium shots because the kitchens never really look that great. You know, they're workplaces, so they're not right. meant to look pretty. And yeah, landscapes, it's a, it's a little bit the same. I think you know the vistas are amazing in the context of the landscape and the farming. And what people do within that landscape is important and interesting. And and then obviously the close-ups to see what they're doing. But anything in the middle, we try to avoid. I mean, one of my personal favorite sequences in the film was, you know, when you went to Will Harrison, who had the farm in Bluffton, Georgia, and you got to see, I mean, I guess you guys probably used a drone for some of that, but that was great, I thought, to have those aerial views so you could see just the expa- how all the animals were in harmony with each other and going into the pasture. And, you know, it was, I, I liked that the most, I think, as far as visually and also as a character, it it was pretty neat. So. Well, it was kind of fun to play with going from the tight, tight close-ups of the zooms to the wide, wide, wide landscapes. Like I think that creates energy and emotion when you're editing a film. So to move back and forth between those was something that we also tried to do specifically in the editing room. But because of the, the great shooting that was done too, I have to give White Oak Pastures the credit for the drone that that's all of their work (laughs) so we were a lean and mean crew and did not have a drone with us but um yeah no it worked great it integrated really well into the film too but even just the other shots with the interviews and talking to the family and it was just so moving about how you know he was passing his legacy on to his daughter and it was pretty neat I liked that a lot of that came from Ruth and just her you know really taking the time and having the curiosity and and tenacity just to stick with these characters over the course of a year. I bet like that scene, for example, would never have happened had we just landed in Bluffton, Georgia and set up Mm -hmm. an interview with, you know, that only happened because Ruth put in the time of getting to know these people and they felt close and safe with her. So now that it were post COVID, what do you think is different? Has there been any big changes do you think in the restaurant industry and the food industry because of COVID? Well, there have been huge changes, and I don't think we're still seeing them. I mean, I think there's still a lot of them to come, you know, but certainly in the restaurant industry, there's a crisis. Something like 2 million people in the hospitality industry aren't going back. I mean, there's a real shortage of labor. 
And I think this happened across industries, but it was really stark in the hospitality industry that people just said, we don't want to do these horrible jobs anymore. And I think labor costs have gone up something like 23% in the last year in the restaurant industry, and people still can't get workers to come in. Yeah, and it's yeah. go- it's going to change the restaurant industry profoundly, and we're just beginning to see it. But restaurants are continuing, surprising restaurants are closing, you know, really successful restaurants yeah. are closing. And in the food industry, generally, on farms, in packing plants, the fragility of this system was really revealed. And there's still a reckoning coming there. You know, the meatpacking plants. I mean, you, you keep seeing articles about oh, yeah. you know, violations of child labor laws and so mm-hmm. forth. And, you know, for me, one of the big takeaways is we need to build a regional, regional food systems across the country. And we really need to start raising food in this country. We raise very little food. Most of agriculture is devoted to commodity crops, which feed animals, but don't feed people. And my hope is that the people who matter, the people in government will really understand that we really need to pay attention to raising enough food to feed feed ourselves, which we don't do right now. Yeah. I mean, right now, too, it's more cost effective to send food out to be packaged in China and then frozen and sent back. Yeah. It's kind of frightening if you think about the next crisis that's going to come and there isn't, you know, there will be another pandemic and climate change is wreaking havoc across the globe. Yes. And my hope is that we will pay attention to the fact that it's really fragile and the next time could be a whole lot worse. You also see it with the Ukraine, right? It's like there's a war in the Ukraine and nobody gets wheat, right? Yeah, exactly. The other thing about this film is, in the end, what we saw was these are all people who passionately love their jobs and feel like loving their jobs is enough. It's not about the money. It's about having a life that you feel good about. And every one of these farmers, ranchers, fishermen that we spoke with, they they have values about why they're doing what they're doing. And if we had more of them, we would be in a much better place. Yeah, definitely. So. I mean, that that was also, you know, part of the fun for me to work on this film, because I have the feeling nobody ever gets to see how food is made, right? Mm-hmm. And, and the film really shows such a variety and having all these people included who really have innovative ideas and yet they're going back to the basics is is so interesting. And really, I don't see anybody talking about that. I would think that, you know, most of the kids in any given school don't even know where food is coming from other than the supermarket. Yeah. Right. I know there's been, you know, a lot of movements to change that. But yeah, it's a, it's a slow process. Um, as far as future plans for the film, did you do you think you might develop into like a television series or? You know, we don't know yet. We're still okay. in the process of selling the film. So right. um, for sure, <laughs> <laughs> once that happens, you know, I, I do think there is potential for some sort of offshoot series, you know, following some of these characters or additional characters, you know, it's like their dramas are like, I mean, they're different than people in the city or the suburbs, but we can all relate to these people. I think that's what was so wonderful about getting to know these characters is 
is they're relatable and they they just want to survive and do what they love. And you know, I think they dispel a lot of stereotypes we have about people in the middle of the country and, and farmers and ranchers, too. I have to say, because I have seen a little bit of Ruth's archive, and that is a treasure trove. That really yeah. should be out there. Yeah, what was the process for getting through all that? Oh, through all the, the archival material? All the, all the footage, all the, yes, or with all the Zooms. Did, was it easy to kind of see who was going to be the standout characters, or did it take a lot of, like, picking and choosing? Our biggest problem was that we had too many great characters. We had, you know, a luxury problem. Yeah. <laughs> it was <laughs> that we had we had characters that we wished had been in the film more or characters that just got completely cut out of the film because a film, you know, has to be a certain length. And no, I think there's there are so many people very similar to the people we have in the film that are just doing incredible things. And, you know, it came down to kind of, OK, this is this is a film about the food system, but we do have to focus it. We do want it to be geographically diverse. We want it to be cover a range of issues focused on labor and economics in the food system. But our real focus was just finding the people that that we thought would move people, you know, that people would fall in love with while watching the film. Yeah, I wanted to see more from a lot of them. It was, you know, which is what you want, right? <laughs> Leave them wanting more. <laughs> yeah. And um, I, will say, I will say that it was a joy to, um, because we had Early in the pandemic, we had this remote cruise, and I would just kind of hire anyone I could find to shoot things. And once Martina came on board, it was such a pleasure to work with someone who made it look so beautiful. And, yeah, and understood, yeah. This, understood and cared about the story enough to know what to capture when she was shooting Verite. So. Right. Had you, Martina, had you and Laura worked together before? Unfortunately not. Unfortunately, no. Fortunately, that wasn't the first time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We will again, I'm sure. Good, because yes. yeah. um, Martina, you have quite a documentary background, right? Yes, I do. Yeah, I, I mean, originally, I'm, I actually come from fiction, but uh, I think for the last ten years or so, I'm primarily shooting documentary. I just love the urgency of documentary, and the, you know, being in the moment and having to do it in the moment, and just having, you know, being able. I mean, I would have never gone to any of these farms, mm-hmm. met met any of these people. You know, it's it's such a gift to be able to do that. And uh, Laura, of course, I'm familiar with your documentary, City of Gold. So for you, what has drawn you to doing like documentaries about food? Is it just a personal interest or? I mean, you know, I think food is just like a wonderful prism, mm-hmm. which to look at many things about life and culture and communities. And I think it's just a way in to different situations, whether it's political or cultural or regional. I don't know. It's just it's. And then I think once you start doing something in a certain field, then you get to know more people and then there's more access. So there's the kind of practical part of it that, um, you know, I mean, food connects us all, right? I mean, it connects us to each other and to culture. And now it just feels like a natural way to sort of find the next the next topic. Yeah. And um, Ruth, did you have any plans for any future endeavors? Film-wise, <laughs> at the moment, no. Um, <laughs> But I, um, I've just turned in my latest novel, so. Oh, great. That, that's an endeavor. <laughs> oh, of course. I've read them yeah. all. <laughs> Which we're eagerly awaiting. Yes. yes. Oh, I didn't even ask you guys about Sundance. Like, how was that experience? Oh, my God. Uh, I mean, for me. <laughs> was it, it was... your first time? I'm sure, Ruth, probably your first time going. And I don't know, Laura, was it yours too, or? Uh, no, I'd, I'd had a couple of films there previously, you know, Impact Man and City of Gold, but it had been ah, a while, right. so it was great to be back. 
but go ahead, Ruth. Well, I mean, for me, it was just, I was meeting most of the characters in person for the first time. So it was enormously emotional. And Laura somehow brought all of them. I mean, I think there were 17 of us there. Oh, wow. <laughs> at Sundance. And, and they were meeting each other. They were, one, seeing the film for the first time, and two, getting to know each other. And, you know, for me, it was extraordinary because I've always thought that food is a way of bringing people together. But seeing all these people together in Sundance really proved it. I mean, here you have people from all across the country, a racial mix, a gender mix, and a political mix, and all really bonding. I mean, these people became friends in the couple days that we were in Sundance, and they will stay in contact with each other. That's great. To hear like an activist, you know, from the South, a Black activist from the South Bronx, telling, you know, these Middle Western farmers, you guys really need to know, figure out how to get out there and market yourselves. <laughs> it's incredible. Yeah. You know? yeah. And to see, you know, this cowboy, I mean, our rancher is right. really is the Marlboro man. And he is that in person. I mean, <laughs> he's, he's, he was unbelievable. I mean, he was like coming out of a storybook yeah. and, you know, incredibly polite, always wearing his hat, but doffing his cap and, <laughs> You know, and making friends with, you know, these like far out radicals. I mean, it was it was amazing. Amazing. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's interesting. Yeah. How they all actually have a common cause. Yeah. yeah I think it's a bipartisan movie because it doesn't matter if you're in a blue state or a red state. If you get people together who care about food, who grow food, who make food, they find so much to agree on. And I think, yeah, no matter whose side you're on, it seems like everyone can agree that it's pretty broken yeah (laughs) correct well and that's once again the power of documentary right you actually get people together who wouldn't talk to each other otherwise that's true that's right absolutely and the other thing was in person they were even more wonderful all of them just wonderful people um they're so positive you know in spite of all the hardships that they've gone through all of these people survived this and came out stronger and that's the thing about farmers they're used to risk they're accustomed to it they never know what's coming down the road so more than any of us they weathered this better absolutely all right well thank you so much you guys for coming on the show it was a great documentary yeah thanks for having us thank you so much thanks for having us Hey, Alana, thank you so much for doing that interview. Yeah, you're welcome. It was fun. We should get you to do more. Oh, you're in trouble now. (laughs) (laughs) This this was like your second or third, I think, right? Yeah, I've done a few. All right. So, Ben, you know what time it is? What time would that be? Oh, it's bill paying time. Woot. I like paying bills. I don't like paying bills at all. We got to give a shout out, actually, to our producer, Alana Cody, uh, sitting right over here, because Green Tree Creative is sponsoring this episode. And of course, 
Green Tree Creative is Alana Cody's company, which Sweet. has been basically kicking all the butt for us now for years and changing uh, our fate entirely as a podcast. We Agreed. were sort of an obscure podcast that had some good SEO with the correct title. But I will say that since Alana has come along, we have blown up all over the world uh, as far as a podcast go, and we get fantastic fan emails and letters and incredible reviews. So we're clearly doing something right. And a lot of it is thanks to Alana Cody and now her company, Green Tree Creative. Uh, you can find out more information about Green Tree Creative at growwithgreentree.com. Well, thank you so much for the commercial. <laughs> thank you for making our podcast what it is today. I it would didn't not be... have to toot my own horn there. If it wasn't for you, we'd be putting out one episode every three months. And, we, and all the stuff that you do in the background, that's the invisible stuff that actually gets a podcast out into the world. And uh, that's what you can offer someone else. And now, short ends. So, uh, Ben, it is short end time. Do you have an obsession this week? Is there something that you are all about? I'm obsessed with lots of stuff, as you know. But uh, this week, there was a new... A new announcement from Adobe. I know I, I maybe uh, go down the Adobe hole. That sounds gross. Uh, maybe once <laughs> once too often here or there. But uh, Adobe released something that I think is kind of a game changer for editing. It's only in their beta version of Premiere Pro right now. But if you are a Creative Cloud subscriber, like I am, and I think I think you are. Yeah, we are. Yeah. Um, yeah, because we do. We edit this in an audition. If you have it, you can easily download the public beta. It's it's public. And what it is, is it's text-based editing. And I think this is going to be an enormous game changer for anyone who has to edit an interview or a documentary or anything with lots of interview-based stuff. Because what it does is you bring your footage in, it basically automatically transcribes. Now, the transcription has been in there for, I don't know, a couple of years now. It's all AI-powered, and I use it on freaking everything that I do. It's very, very helpful. I should say anything I do with interviews in it, which is a lot. And now what it does is it gives you the transcript. Like they built a new window. That's just how they arrange the, the panels on your computer screen. But you can literally cut and paste the text from the transcript and it will build a timeline with the cut and pasted text. So in other words, you're not editing picture at all. You're making picture by editing text. Now there are uh, services like Descript, which I know I've spoken about on here before. Descript does something very similar. And I think it, it's something we're probably gonna see popping up in every editing platform. But Adobe's transcription is so tight already. Like everything about this is just really, really tight. And I can see this also feeding into Adobe has a whole podcast app that they haven't launched yet. It's not out yet. But they do have like a vocal enhancer, which I now run on any audio. If it's even slightly problematic, I will run it through this thing and it takes out echo. It takes out extraneous sound and it makes it cleaner than Descript does. But I can see this all kind of feeding into their podcast. Uh, I don't know what it's going to be called. I think it's just going to be called Adobe Podcast. But they're they're creating a platform just for podcasting. I think that's going to include text-based editing, which is what Descript does right now. And to be able to use it for editing uh, video interviews to me is uh, it's an enormous game changer because when you're editing an interview, if you've ever done it, even with a transcript in front of you, you're always hunting. You're like, you'll even be like looking for one word or one tiny phrase. And now you can just search for it, copy it, paste it. And every piece of text is time coded to a piece of video. 
which is already the case with their transcription. It's just taking that to the next logical step. And I think it's going to speed up people's workflow. So people, you know, in reality television or documentary uh, or corporate video are going to get a lot out of this. It sounds like anyone who's doing any sort of interview could completely use this to shrink their workflow dramatically. It sounds awesome. It even allows you to like, it'll detect pauses and it'll detect like ums and uhs and stuff like that. And I feel like it's probably not far away where you could say, get rid of the ums and uhs. Now, obviously, if you're making a piece of video, I would leave that stuff in there until you have B-roll cutting over stuff. But I would also say, and this is something that I've just been noticing a lot lately, is that jump cuts in interviews are now more of an acceptable thing. You see them all the time. Now, you don't really see it in like premium cable or network television, but you see it on YouTube constantly where someone will chop up their the, the dialogue. Yeah. I, it still bothers me. I but blame yeah, YouTube. It's like de rigueur now. It's like everyone like yeah. has jump cuts all the time. I, I mean, it kind of bothers me, Ilya, because I spend so much time trying to make my edits smoother than hell. And if I'm cutting something that's interview based or documentary based, it's like I'll have a, a long clip and then like I'll have a photo or a piece of B-roll or something. And if you looked, if you were to look at my timeline, that shit's all cut to hell because I'm cutting out every pause and um and uh, and I might be rephrasing stuff subtly underneath there. But uh, anyway, I just feel like text-based editing is it's going to be something that we're going to start seeing more and more of because it's going to speed up the workflow. It sounds amazing. Cool. Uh, so Alana, you are staying with us here for uh, short ends. What is your pet obsession of the week? Well, I thought it was really interesting. This kind of goes back to Sundance. There, It's just kind of like how some of the um, indie films are not really selling as high as you know they used to i read an article and i happened to see this movie although we didn't talk to anybody from it out of sundance called cat person Hmm. and so they didn't have a buyer or distribution for it yet but studio canal financed the movie so they invested 12 million in Mm. into this film that's walking around money yeah, but they got a lowball offer from Netflix for $1.75 million. So they're pretty pissed that nobody else has given them any better offers. And CAA, UTA, and Condé Nast has uh, been given the opportunity, I guess they were also investors in it, to buy back the rights if they want to try to market it elsewhere, I guess. So anyway, um, moral of the story is don't make a movie for more than a hundred grand. What, what's the, <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I guess the upshot is just mm-hmm. that, you know, there were a few big winners out of Sundance, but this wasn't one of them, which is surprising because the movie has Amelia Jones, who was in Coda mm-hmm. and Nicholas Braun, who plays cousin Greg on Succession. No, I thought it was a pretty good movie, but apparently it the stars aren't really big enough to like draw they think a big enough audience to really make a lot of money. So Hey, neither one is Nick Cage. So let's just get that <laughs> square right now. It's a good point. And I think it was really pretty well acted and I thought it was a pretty good movie, actually. Did it look like a twelve million dollar movie? Did it look like they, they really spent that? Because I'm not saying that producers might inflate no. the, the budget number. You think it was less? You think they were probably spent? Did it look like 12 million? No. Okay. And, and, th- and that's the thing too. It's well, and, and, and 12 million isn't, you know, in terms of movie money, like 12 million doesn't get you that much. Although I think a resourceful filmmaker can make, you know, a $12 million movie look like a $20 million movie. 
as we've seen many times before with many other incredible filmmakers who've taken very low budgets and turned it into amazing things. But I think that it just has to be something that speaks to the buyers at that given time. And I, I don't think that Sundance is, uh, is unique in this way, but sometimes movies make it into a festival and the buyers just don't show up for it. It is a bummer, though, because you go like, oh, well, if you get into Sundance, that's kind of the brass ring. That's where all the buyers are going to be. And there are a handful of festivals that are like that, you know, like maybe Tribeca. Rotterdam. I really don't know, like, what their expectations were for the kind of deal they were wanting to get out of the festival. I mean... More than 12. Yeah, (laughs) obviously. But, I mean, Netflix giving them a streaming deal with which wouldn't include theatrical means that that's kind of all the money they'd be getting. Well, yeah, and that's the thing. Like, once upon a time, if you were making that kind of movie, you could sell it off territory by territory. But if you sell it to Netflix, that's kind of like everyone who gets Netflix all at once, unless... Netflix pays separately for Europe or Asia or whatever. So they'd really like theatrical and the stars want theatrical too. You know, it's interesting because Coda initially was sold to Apple and then Apple decided to go ahead and give it a theatrical briefly for Oscar consideration. Yeah. And it was a good thing they did because it did really well. Well, it won. Yeah, exactly. So <laughs> well, like, and that's, I was actually reading an article, I think it was in IndieWire, and it was talking about movies like Megan, you know, did really well theatrically and is now killing it and streaming. And it's a weird piece of wisdom that was conventional wisdom once and then went away and is back now. And they're like, the way to be a big streaming hit, get a theatrical. All right, Ilya, what is your short end for this week? We recently started using a Roku device, a new Roku device. And I have to say, we haven't had a a Roku device since since probably the the first one. So uh, there's been a lot of improvements. But one of the things I was particularly impressed by, and I think is an interesting trend, is that NBC has their own app on there. So NBC, the network, has their own app on Roku, which you can go to to watch some live content, some classic content, stuff that used to only be able to find like on YouTube, like Saturday Night Live, like Saturday Night Live, I could watch the most recent Saturday Night Live. This is a real departure from streaming services, which sort of aggregate all of this and put it together like a Hulu, which is of course is co-owned by by a number of parties and also uh, sort of pay services like you might have like a Paramount Plus that wants you to buy into this back catalog of television shows and, and movies across all of their, you know, the Viacom network. Uh, the NBC app, it's like, you know, there's a little disclaimer that says, oh, this may require fees. But as far as I can tell, for me clicking on it and playing it, no fees. And it also makes me wonder sort of what the future is for each of these different apps and these different players. And and this is distinct from Peacock. This is a different app. Correct. This is the NBC app, not Peacock, which I, I found really interesting that there's a little disclaimer that says that Nielsen rating software is built into this app as well. Mm. So that means that as I'm clicking on or watching this stuff, it seems to me like I don't have to be a Nielsen family. That data is going back to Nielsen for recording purposes. And I can only imagine that they really, really want that data to then justify what's going to be their rates that, that they charge for people to look at this or the rates they charge for advertising. So and of course, you know, HBO has introduced like the, the advertising tier. There's a lot of if you pay to not see ads, you may not see ads anywhere anymore. But I have a feeling that every service out there that 
may be a currently non-advertised model, may have a free option in the future that is all ad supported. I think that the the advertisers, they spent, what, $7 million for a 30-second Super Bowl. Uh, I think that there's an awful lot of advertisers out there who want to have a constant connection with the audiences. And the way to do that is going to be going forward in the future on a rolling basis on demographics that you may not want to be giving these streaming services, but they have about you. And there will be either you're paying money for all of this content or you are getting ads for all this content. And I don't know which way it's going to be, but mark my words, perhaps in two years from now, all of these services that you love, maybe there'll be a very inexpensive tier or a free tier, which uh, is filled with ads. And it's going to be just like the old days of uh, commercial television. Guess it's a big circle. <laughs> that, will, that will be comforting. <laughs> All right. So, so that's it. That's my short end. I know it was a little bit longer because we added a, a third short end this time. So, Ben, where can people find you? They want to track you down. I'll be quick about it. Go to BenRock.com. Go to BenRock.com and you can find me. You can check out my reel. Check out my social media. Find me on Twitter, LinkedIn, Facebook, whatever. Say hi. How about yourself? Oh, you can find me over at Hot Rod Cameras, HotRodCameras.com. And Alana, where can people find you? You can find me at uh, GrowWithGreenTree.com. All right. So, uh, Ben, let's thank some people. Who should we thank? Well, we don't often get to thank Alana Cody to her face. <laughs> so thank Let's you, Alana. <laughs> thank you, Alana, for everything. You were really uh, firing on all cylinders while Sundance was happening and getting a bunch of interviews and screeners and uh, and, and all that stuff going. So thank you for and, making our podcast. And more Oscar interviews, too. Oh, yeah. That's true. That's true. <laughs> Uh, all right, so let's also thank Ben Katz. Ben Katz, who's got uh, a little bit extra editing this uh, this episode. Thank you, Ben Katz. And uh, let's thank Kays Alatrachi. Kays, you know, music by Kays. He uh, recorded, composed, uh, produced all of the music that you heard in this show and pretty much every show that we've ever done. So yes, musicbykays.com. Someone who actually messaged me the other day told me they, they did hit up Kays, so he can't say that no one has ever done that before. And I, I look forward to, uh, to, to pushing him on that. So, hey, since we have a, a guest with us today, Alana, do you want to take us out? Thanks for listening. This has been the Cinematography Podcast, presented by Hot Rod Cameras. Find your next camera, lens, or accessory on the web at hotrodcameras.com. Don't forget to subscribe to our show on iTunes and connect with us on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.